Thanks, Natalie. It's good to see everyone um, today. As I said, I'm Mark, and you know, after, after today, if you'd love to chat with me, come and chat with me. We'll have some nice uh, morning tea as well. But we just heard God speak in his word there um, as the Bible was being read. And so would you join me in prayer as we ask God to uh, let the word impact our lives? Join me in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, uh, we come before you today to hear you speak, uh, to hear what your word has to stay, say for our lives, Lord. And help us to, uh, help us to be impacted by it truthfully uh, and help us to see the need that people have to hear about Jesus and the resurrection and to live for that and by your help, um, do that joyfully. I pray this all in your son's name. Amen. A little while ago, um, a friend came and told me that, Mark, cooking vegetables makes them healthier for you. And I was like, no, no way. I'm pretty sure that in general, if you cook vegetables, it makes them less nutritious for you. Uh, but then they came and gave me these articles, article after article, saying that in general, with all vegetables, when you cook them, it actually makes more of the nutrients available for your body to absorb. My response was, no, 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 no. I want to disprove all of your claims and reject everything that you said. I'm, I should know. I'm the guy who has the biomedical science degree. I've had some um, papers with the food science crew. Some of them are actually here today. And I'm like, no way. In general, cooking vegetables makes them less nutritious. But then the evidence kept coming in article after article, and as I looked at it, I had to admit that I was wrong. I hated that, but I had to admit that I was wrong because the evidence was there. But yeah, why is it so hard to change our minds? With my friend, I thought I was the expert on things nutrition. I had the background in science, but to be quite honest, I was stubborn. I didn't want to admit that I was wrong, and I certainly didn't want to admit that my friend was right. So even when I was faced with the facts, I wanted to reject them. But the facts are still the facts, and so I had to admit that I was wrong. I had to let the facts shape my ideas and respond accordingly. And I've never looked back. Stir fries are great. <laughs> Sometimes it can be hard to face the facts because it challenges how we think about ourselves and about the world. And often it may mean that we need to change the way we live as well. But what happens when we face the fact that Jesus lived, died, and rose to life again? What happens when we face the facts of this historic event of Jesus rising from the dead, his resurrection? In today's passage, we see this historic um, question being played out in history. What happens when people, a king, a Roman governor, devout religious Jews, what happens when they are confronted with the reality that Jesus rose from the dead. How will they respond? How will we respond? So often our presumptions about events, why they happen, they cloud how we see and understand those events. So we need to check our presumptions. That's point number one in your outlines. Check your presumptions. It's around the year 60 AD, and Porcius Festus is the new Roman governor in Caesarea. Uh, Felix, the old Roman governor, has left Festus with a case brought to him by the Jews. Uh, Paul, a follower of Jesus, is being held in custody um, by, because, the Rome, because the Jews want him dead. And so Festus, he does the right and proper thing of letting the accused come before the accusers and give a defense. But that hearing only makes Festus more confused about things. But thankfully, King Agrippa, a Roman-appointed king for the Jews, he comes along, 
and he's visiting Caesarea. So Festus is like, great, Agrippa's here, I'm gonna ask him for some advice. And it's in this conversation between Festus and Agrippa that we see something interesting. We see the presumptions of the secular. Listen to what Festus says in chapter 25, verse 18. It should be on the screen for you. Festus says, the accusers stood up, but brought no charge against him of the evils I was expecting. Instead, they had some disagreements with him about their own religion, about a certain Jesus, a dead man Paul claimed to be alive. Since I was at a loss in a dispute over such things, I asked him if he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding these matters. But when Paul, when Paul, there we go, but when Paul appeared to be held for trial by the emperor, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I could send him to Caesar. For Festus, this idea of someone rising from the dead it's an impossible event, it's an impossibility. And so he explains his presumption is that people don't rise from the dead, that's what he believes without necessarily having proof for it. And so he thinks about this whole issue that the Jews bring before him as insignificant. It's just a Jewish religious dispute. Let the religious folk deal with their religious matters. He writes it off as insignificant. Well, it's not like it doesn't affect him. The thing that does affect him is the politics of the event. He wants to do the Jews a favor and get rid of Paul, and then win support from the Jews. That's what is going through Festus' mind. But this whole idea of someone rising from the dead, utterly ridiculous. Festus decides that Jesus' resurrection, him rising from the dead, is insignificant because he thinks it's impossible. And it's not hard to see how our presumptions about things can actually shape the way we engage with the facts. I remember I was watching this Netflix documentary about people who believe that the Earth is flat. It's called Behind the Curve. And what really struck me about this um, Netflix documentary I was uh, uh, hearing from it was just how, how much the flat earthers were willing to explain away the evidence of the Earth being round. So something might go like this. The interviewer comes along and asks um, a question. All right, so you know we have planes that fly around the globe, emphasis on around the globe. And the flat earth is like, okay, yeah, yeah, that's, that's easy to explain. It's because all of the plane companies are in on one massive conspiracy theory. Um, and so, you know, we don't listen to what the um, plane companies say. And then the interviewer goes, okay, cool, um, but how do you explain gravity on a flat earth? I got that one for you. We're actually all on just a big circular disc. We're, sitting on one, we're standing on one side and it's just launching through space and that force is what's causing gravity. That's how we have gravity on a flat earth. But then I'm thinking, and the interviewer's thinking, and the interviewer asks, but hold on, we have pictures from space of the Earth being a sphere. Uh, how do you explain that? Simple. NASA is in on it too. That's how you explain it away. But if we put our conspiracy theories aside and examine ourselves, we should ask the question, what presumptions do I bring to Jesus and his resurrection? If I presume that people don't rise from the dead, then the resurrection must be a hoax. It can't happen. I don't need to engage with the evidence. If I presume that God doesn't exist, then the Bible must be false. We all like to think we are driven by the facts, but it's worth asking, where are my presumptions coloring or shaping the facts? We don't just see the presumptions of the secular in this passage, we also see the presumptions of the religious. It is in the Jews who brought Paul on trial, and also in Paul himself, before he became a Christian. Come and hear what Paul says about his past. We'll start at verse 4, and I'll highlight some important points, make sure I'm not taking things out of context. Uh, but hear Paul in verse 4. All the Jews know my way of life from my youth. 
which was spent from the beginning among my own people and in Jerusalem. According to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee, and now I stand on trial because of the hope in what God promised to our ancestors. Why do any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? In fact, I myself was convinced that it was necessary to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I locked up the many saints. Um, when they were put to death, I was in agreement of that. I often punished them and tried to make them blaspheme. I even pursued them to foreign cities. The problem with the religious is that they think they know what God, God's doing. They know what his plans and purposes are, but actually they've made them up. They've taken what they think they would do and how they think they would run the world and attributed that to God. They may have even looked at the scriptures and seen God's big picture plan, but then they decided how it's all going to play out according to their ideas, not God's ideas. So when Paul says he's a Pharisee, it's actually a good thing. He's saying that he's a by-the-book believer. He believes that what the scriptures say about God sending a savior, the Messiah, he believes that there will be a time when all people um, will rise from the dead with new bodies, and some will receive eternal life, and others will face, judge, uh, will face God's justice. But even though Paul and the Jews are kind of on track in the scriptures, they've added their own ideas in. They've got this picture, they've built up their own picture of what God's Savior should be like, rather than listening to what God has said in his word. They thought the Messiah would be a powerful conqueror, someone who would overthrow their Roman oppressors. But this Jesus, he was no conqueror. He was captured. He was killed and humiliated on a cross. There's no way that the resurrection age begins with Jesus. These Christians must be liars. How can they be talking about God's plan in that way? I find that our presumptions about God often stem from this one thought. If I were God, I would do things this way. If I were God, I'd provide many ways to salvation. And so I can't believe that Jesus is the only way. If I were God, I would not send people to hell because how can that be loving? And so I might ignore what the Bible says about judgment. If I were God, have you ever found yourself saying that? It happens to me quite a bit. Um, it happens to me in many ways all the time, and I have to keep reminding myself and remembering that I'm not God. God is God, and I am not. God and God alone is God. And we must shape our ideas around him, around what he actually says and has said in his word, not what we think he should have said. Friends, we need to check our presumptions. And that can be hard to do on our own. Maybe it's even impossible but that's why we have others around us, Christian friends, uh, Bible study groups, even guys up the front doing Bible talks. They can help us see what we're missing or presuming. And that could be how God is working in us. And so if we have our presumptions in full view, then we'll be in good shape to face the facts. That's point number two, facing the facts. As Paul continues on in his speech, we hear about the thing that changed his presumptions. He came face to face with the facts. So look at what he says in verse 12. It'll be on the screen. Paul says, I was traveling to Damascus under these circumstances with authority and a commission from the, high, from the chief priests. King Agrippa, while on the road at midday, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those traveling with me. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice speaking to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. 
I asked, who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Paul, he came face to face with Jesus, alive. You can't argue with that. <laughs> Imagine what must be going through Paul's head. No, this, this can't be right. How can... I've, I just, I've been devoting my life to God's work. I just really wanted to make sure his name wasn't being, being slandered. There's no way these Christians were right. I killed them for God's sake. But Jesus, you're alive. Just like the Christians had said, have I been doing things wrong? But Paul, he's a, he's a by-the-book believer. Surely the scriptures would prove that Jesus is not the Messiah. Surely the scriptures would prove that this guy who is killed and humiliated on the cross, surely the scriptures would back Paul up. But look at Paul's own words in verse 22. To this very day, I have had help from God, and I stand and testify to both small and great, saying nothing other than what the prophets and Moses has said would take place, that the Messiah would suffer, and that as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. See what Paul's missed? All of Scripture, all of the Bible, points to Jesus being the Savior, who would, be, who would suffer a horrific death, but also rise from the dead, giving hope to the world. None of this happens in a vacuum. Jesus rose from the dead according to the Scriptures. How will Paul respond? Well, we'll look at Paul's response soon because I think the passage raises an, in, an interesting question which we all might already be thinking about. Why doesn't Jesus just appear to people today? Why, he did it to Paul. Why doesn't he appear to people today? And as I've been looking at this passage and I've been consulting commentaries, I, I think the simple answer is because it isn't Jesus' purpose or plan to do that. Look back at verse 16. It's on the screen. Jesus appeared to Paul for a specific purpose to appoint him as a servant and a witness. Now, this isn't meant to be a normal experience, but just because it isn't normal doesn't mean it's false. What the text is showing us is that this event happened. Jesus appeared to Paul. But it's not saying we should expect Jesus to appear to people today. Verse 16 also says something else, though. Jesus wants us to consider and listen to the testimony of his apostles and followers as they speak about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Listen to the accounts of the apostles of Jesus and his followers. Listen to the accounts of the apostles of Jesus and his followers. Hold up. How does all of that, what they say about Jesus, how does it all line up with history, right? And actually, as I've been looking this up, it's historically indisputable that the Jesus of the Bible actually lived and actually died. There is one claim that's disputed, whether he actually rose from the dead. Uh, look at how this one non-Christian historian puts it. His name's Josephus. Josephus says, talking about Jesus' time, at this time there was a wise man who was called Jesus. And his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. And those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that, they had, that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets had recounted wonders. Jesus really did live, and he really did die. But did he really rise from the dead? Well, his disciples certainly thought so, and they lived and died for that belief. Would people really die for something they didn't think was true? Jesus' followers died for their beliefs 
because they saw Jesus alive again. And with their own eyes, they shared what they saw uh, with people around them by word of mouth, but also written down. And this is a confession of mine. I often forget that the New Testament that we have in our Bibles is a historical document. In it, we have four eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That's your four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Christianity was built on eyewitness testimonies. Look at how Paul um, says what he says in his letter to the Corinthians. See how he puts it. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, he also appeared to me. Paul, he speaks in such a matter-of-fact way. He's saying, Jesus lived, died, and rose again. There's 500 people who saw him. You can go chat with them if you want to know more about it. Just chat with those guys who saw Jesus alive. Some of them are dead, but most of them are still alive. Uh, And here's another history nerd moment for you as I've been looking this up. Um, The Corinthians passage is still on the screen. This really amazes me. This letter to the Corinthians was written 20 years, only 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And the paragraph that is on the screen that we just read is actually a statement, a really early statement of belief, a creed of some sorts. Now look at what one historian says about when this creed must have been formed. This is James D.G. Dunn. He says, This tradition, we can be entirely confident, was formulated as tradition within months of Jesus' death. This tells us that this isn't make-belief. This isn't a legend. This is history. You have the non-Christian historical resources, Josephus, Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, uh, Mara, Barsarapian, and more. And you have the historical um, evidence in the New Testament of the eyewitness accounts of the Bible. But so what? How does Jesus rising from the dead, how does that affect me? Well, if Jesus really did rise from the dead, just like he said he would, then it means he really is God. It means what Jesus says is true. He really can save me. He really can forgive my sins. Look at what he says in Acts 26, starting at verse 17. He says to Paul, I am sending you to them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. It also means, though, that if I reject Jesus, then I still need to face God and answer for how I've treated him and ignored him. See what Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 36. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. If Jesus really is king, and if we ignore the facts, it will not end well for us. And I think it's, you can picture it like this. If I'm standing in the middle of the street and there's a bus coming towards me at 50 k's an hour and I ignore the bus, no amount of ignorance of the bus coming at me will change the fact that the bus is coming at me and I'll suddenly die. If I ignore my electricity bills that come in, no amount of ignorance will change the fact that if I don't pay the bills, uh, my power is going to be cut off. Now, if you ignore your wife's birthday, that's not going to change the fact that there's still going to be wrath to come and so you better (laughs) do something about it. In general, don't forget your wife's birthday. I'm not saying I did. 
If we ignore the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, that doesn't change the fact that it still happened. And unless we respond to it, unless I respond to it, I'll still need to face God's justice for my willful disobedience and rejection against him, for the hurt I've caused towards him and towards others. I'll still need to face God. Such a historical event of Jesus' rising from the dead, such a historical event demands a response. And that's point number three. Two responses, repent or reject. Paul has been fighting against Jesus, but now that he's seen the risen Jesus alive, it's just like the Christians have said, he cannot deny the truth of Christianity, and so he turns from his old ways and turns toward following Jesus. See how Paul puts it in verse 19. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Instead, I preached to those in Damascus first and to those in Jerusalem and all region of Judea and to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and were trying to kill me. Paul changes how he lives because he's changed who he's living for. He turns away from his old life of fighting against Jesus and turns towards living for Jesus. And that's what repentance means. It means to turn around, to turn back. And you know those signs that you might see in the rearview mirror of your um, car as you go on the highway, off-ramp, off hopefully, and not seeing it forward, because it's a big red sign that says, wrong way, go back. That sign's telling you to repent, because if you keep going, you'll be in collision course with another car. Repentance is about turning back. Repentance is also about recognizing that you should be living for Jesus. He is your king. And so you live in light of that belief. We're not working our way to be good enough for God. No, we're saying that Jesus is king. But if we say that Jesus is king, then we have to act like Jesus is king. Like he is our king. And I still find myself falling into that pattern of thinking. It's a struggle of mine with my Bible reading, that I'm working myself to be good enough for God. I need to keep remembering that I'm, I'm not reading my Bible in order to be accepted by God. No, no, I'm already accepted because he's forgiven my sins and I trust in him. But I do read my Bible because I believe it is God's word. I read my Bible not only because it's beneficial to me, but because it's what God says. It's the truth about, about myself, about the world. And so I need to respond accordingly. Living for Jesus also means that we are excited for the privilege to share the good news of Jesus to those around us. Remember what Paul says in verse 22. To this very day, I have had help from God, and I stand and testify to both small and great, saying nothing other than what the prophets and Moses said would take place, that the Messiah must suffer, and that, as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. Christians have this awesome privilege to share the good news about God to everyone. And it's from the Bible, sharing it to everyone, and we have God's help as we do this. Although we owe our lives to God because he created us, we've rejected him, and so we don't deserve to have life. Death in judgment is what we deserve. But Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior who died on the cross in our place, taking our punishment. And he rose from the dead, proving that he is God, proving that he is Savior, proving that he is King. And he offers forgiveness to all of those who would trust in him and depend on him. If you face the facts of the resurrection, could have been a long time ago, or it could be today, can I encourage you to keep living in light of that? 
and keep living in a way that reflects your living for Jesus. Be careful of being led astray by your own ideas. I remember a friend that comes to mind. He's so caught up in the fact that there must be multiple ways to reach God that he misses what God is saying in the Bible, that Jesus is the only way. And, and he offers forgiveness and life so freely, but because he's so caught up with his own ideas, he misses God in the Bible. And that only reminds me that people need to hear about Jesus. They need to keep hearing about Jesus from the Bible. So, so keep sharing the message that all of the Bible points to, that Jesus died in our place and rose to life again. And rely on God's help as you do that. But the story in this passage ends with a word of those um, who would reject. How will Festus and Agrippa respond? Verse 24 should be on the screen. As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus exclaimed in a loud voice, You are out of your mind, Paul. Your study has driven you mad. Festus is still caught up with his presumptions. His response? Reject. What about Agrippa? Verse 25, Paul replies, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. Great comeback, by the way. (laughs) On the contrary, I am speaking words of truth and good judgment. For the king knows... The king knows about these matters, and I can speak boldly to him. For I am convinced that none of these events have escaped his notice, since it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Agrippa said to Paul, Are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? I wish before God, replies Paul, that whether easily or with difficulty, whether short or long, not only you, but all who are listening to me, that you will be as I am, except for these chains. The events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and all that his followers did um, after that, none of these things happened in a corner. And so King Agrippa, he knows about all of these things, and he even believes the scriptures. So, so why doesn't he turn to Jesus? Well, I think it comes down to this, politics, power, and comfort. Turning to Jesus means losing favor with the Jews and with the Romans. Living for Jesus means giving up power to live your own life and rule your own life. Kings hate giving up their crowns. And as Paul shows, speaking for Jesus gets you hated and persecuted by the world. Isn't that the same for us, friends? We love being loved by others, but Jesus won't make you popular. We love being comfortable, but the Christian life is not meant to be easy. We love running our own lives, and so we hate giving Jesus the crown he deserves. The thing is, if the facts say that we are not God and that Jesus is God, then the only rational response is to put Jesus where he rightfully deserves to be, in the driver's seat, as king over our lives. Hear what God is saying in his word today. Don't don't sit on the fence like Agrippa. If you have seen the facts that Jesus is king, and if you say that he is king, then don't hesitate, but believe in him and live for him. What happens when we face the facts of Jesus rising from the dead? It will challenge our presumptions. Uh, Check that you're not letting your own ideas shape how you engage with the facts. And maybe you could ask a friend, where did the claims of the Bible challenge my presumptions? Not just the ones about resurrection, about Jesus rising from the dead, but other claims too. Do we make God smaller than he is because I can't see how he's fully in control? Do we have a skewed view of blessing because we can't see how God could use suffering for our good? Where am I thinking that 
God should do what I do, because if I were God, I would do things differently. Keep facing the facts of Jesus and the resurrection. Come and engage with the Jesus of the Bible, and bring your questions, friends. Um, Because ignoring Jesus, ignoring Jesus in the Bible, will not change the fact that he rose from the dead. And these facts demand a response. Don't put off trusting and living for Jesus, because if we reject Jesus, that's going to be more than awkward when we meet him when he returns. When Jesus returns, we'll be called to account of how we have treated him, how we've ignored him, how we pretended that he wasn't king, and how we pretended that we could call the shots on our own lives. But if we turn and trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins, we will be forgiven. And we get to join in the same mission as Paul and all the other followers of Jesus, of sharing this good news of Jesus rising from the dead to the world, even if it puts us in sticky situations. We can be assured that God will transform us and he will empower us for this mission of sending that good news out. Friends, all of scripture points to this most historic event of all, Jesus' resurrection. It will challenge our presumptions, it will call us to respond, and it will certainly change us for life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord, help us to see who you are in the Bible. Help us to trust who you say you are, that we would follow you, that we would not fight against Jesus, but turn to follow Jesus, Lord. For all of us here, help us to keep on living in light of Jesus' resurrection. By your spirit, Lord, help us to share that good news. And we trust in you that you will always be with us and always empowering us to send that message out. And we thank you, Lord, for that you have saved us. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.